0: Hi there, I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Evan Troxell. And on this episode, I welcome John Turner. John has built his career around the use of technology to transform organizations. He started in the offshore industry in the North Sea In Vision and Remote Intervention Systems, linked to 3D modeling, where his work was recognized by the Fellowship of Society of Underwater Technology. This eventually led to his interest in the use of BIM and digital twins to improve organizations by unlocking the value of technology to transform business processes. In 2012, John joined GAFCON and is currently the Vice President of Innovative Solutions in their San Diego office. His mission is to apply evolving construction technology to benefit owners. He transferred into his current role in 2015 and has been instrumental in the convergence of multiple siloed technologies, building a team of architects, civil engineers, technologists, data scientists, and project execution specialists that all want to transform the digital building lifecycle, but from the perspective of an owner has applied and continually develops this through the engagement with multiple billion-dollar building lifecycle programs for what he calls serial builders. And you'll hear a lot more about owners and serial builders and digital twins in this episode. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with John Turner. Well, John, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here, and thanks for taking the time to talk today. Thanks, Evan. Glad to be talking with you. We've just recently met, and we came to our conversation because of the work that you're doing at the Digital Twin Consortium. So I thought maybe we could start big picture and identify these buzzwords in a more um, easily understandable way. You know, a lot of people talk about Digital Twin. A lot of people use that terminology in very different ways so i thought maybe we could take a step back and just kind of level that playing field about the vocabulary here because i know one of your guys goals within this consortium is to standardize around some vocabulary right Um, so can you just take us through what is digital twin and what is the value proposition uh, that you guys see
1: absolutely well I should point out that I don't represent the Digital Twin Consortium. We are, GAPCON is a a member of the Digital Twin Consortium. We have been members uh, since day one, and we're very active within all of the work groups. But what I will do is to to read you the Digital Twin Consortium definition of a digital twin, at least the initial part of that. And a digital twin is a virtual representation of real-world entities And processors, very important. And processors synchronized at specified frequency and fidelity. So the digital twin is not just a visual representation, which uh, a lot of people uh, are applying. That visual only. They say if we produce the BIM, we have a digital twin, Mm -hmm. or if we produce a, a a scan. Uh, or a, a laser scan of the facility, we have a digital twin. That does not comply with the definition because there needs to be some link between the the real world entity and the digital entity that is able to be synchronized at specific frequencies. And we're really very much focusing on not so much just the, the visual representation as the use cases. Mm-hmm. So a key part of the the digital twin is to define the value that it's going to create for an owner. And there's a lot of discussion about how that value can be created through the Internet of Things, IoT. But there are a lot of other perspectives on how that value is created. But generally, the value is created through use cases. We can probably get into some of the, the different perspectives as this evolves But the the other definition that I would like to uh, make sure we we cover at this stage is what we call the digital thread. Hmm. And the digital thread gives us the ability to to link this data uh, together as we go through the the life cycle of the facility, what we call the digital building life cycle, from the concept through uh, the, the programming and planning aspects to gather the requirements through design, procurement, through construction, and then into operations. And operations could have lots of different factors. Building automation system might be providing data. The uh, sensors might be providing data in terms of the Internet of Things. And then we can get the activity of the the people in the building, which is the the Internet of Actions. Uh, But really what the digital thread is starting to do is to to bring together all these different flows of data coming from a variety of different systems and different sensors, and make those available to other systems such that we can start to correlate that data and get realizations and insights into how that building is being consumed by the the employees in a a way that
0: just taking a, a siloed perspective would never provide. Mm. So, when you're talking about extending this kind of analysis and opportunities for modification or beyond delivery of the building is what we're, ta- we're talking about. Extending, y- you mentioned it as the the digital building lifecycle, which also goes into the physical realm at some point. Like a transition happens, but it continues so that you can make great decisions with that tremendously expensive asset that the owner ha- now has.
1: Absolutely. The, from an owner's perspective, we can start to think of that asset as being a, a 30 or a 50 year or or even longer asset. Right. And it will have to go through multiple different iterations in order to be able to to support
0: the the functions of the employees. Yeah, absolutely. So what we're really fundamentally talking about from the the architect engineer and contractor is extending that relationship beyond delivery of the of the keys to the building absolutely the, the
1: architect engineer contractor trade partners are really only focusing on the 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 planning design and construction phases of the digital building lifecycle. and this fairly recently said that that's probably only 80 or 85% of the the total cost of the building in owner terms. Mm. So even if we optimize design and construction, we're only going to be able
0: to impact 15% of most of the cost Mm -hmm. from an owner's perspective. So coming from the construction side like you are with GAFCON, and why are you guys particularly interested in this? Because Obviously, there's risk involved in this um, because we've talked about it on this show before that design and, you know, that delivery of that building oftentimes is a a prototype or it's a hypothesis. There are many issues upon which it has been decided like this will be the solution, but we don't know for sure. I'm, I'm an architect. I've worked on plenty of buildings where you have many hopes for the things that that building will help the business or the owner achieve, but there's no real guarantee. And now we're talking about actually having to deliver on those promises through measuring whether those things actually happen or not. And I I suppose you could kind of easily say, well, for those who are willing to take the the risk, there's also potential reward there, right? I mean, having a a 30 to 50 year relationship with a client is very different than having a, a three to five year relationship if it's a big project. So what do you guys see? Why are you going after this? And why do you think it's important to do this and to extend it beyond the delivery of the building?
1: Very good question. So Gapcon only works with owners. And our remit is really to provide solutions to owners that optimizes their their entire life cycle of that building. Mm. So whereas our traditional focus has been very much in the the construction phase up to, to handover, we first of all realized that even in design and construction there were silos which could be better optimized from an owner's perspective by starting to to understand data data flows and the technical applications and processes that would enable those but uh, when we started to look at the some of the the costs that we could start to influence one of the biggest costs was to take the, the finished building at the end of construction and take it into the operations life cycle. And as we started to audit this process on behalf of our owners, we were finding lots of things which could be optimized. So, for example, just to clean up data and get it into the IWMS or CMMS systems can cost anything up to 3 or, or 4% of the construction cost of a building in doing that uh, quite often it, it takes a considerable period of time and so some of the warranty conditions can be voided and so that whole process was starting to to cost owners uh, a lot of money and then when we started to look at applying this uh, across some of our what we call our serial builders owners owner operators who are looking at a portfolio approach rather than just a, a one-off building approach, we were finding, as we ask questions like, which vendor's equipment has been most efficient for you, such that we can start to influence the, the choice of equipment as we go through the design and construction phase, we were finding that the, the data is in such a what we call a, a dirty state. It mm-hmm. wasn't able to be searched across the the entire portfolio to start to gather information, which could start to inform a better design and construction process. And so all of this was starting to influence the the approach, which was if we don't get the, the data in the correct form, and we don't produce data throughout the entire digital building life cycle, which is able to be correlated and searched across the entire portfolio, then we're not going to be able to influence cost outcomes for uh, any of our,
0: our our large owners. So you guys are looking at doing that. I, I would assume that this is kind of what leads to the idea of a consortium, right? Is is not necessarily con- creating standards, maybe it is, but, but more about applying standards to owners because – they're going to have to own a piece of that data collection it's it can't just be done by this outside entity i would assume
1: no it's the digital twin consortium was was really an organization that was pulled together by some very large uh, owners mm. so microsoft was uh, was one of those and we we do a lot of work with microsoft mm. and so we were looking at ways in which we could better influence the, the processes but uh, Dell and Lendlease and Ansys and Autodesk and Bentley are are all founders of the Digital Twin Consortium. And they're very much looking at uh, a standards-based approach to the application of some of these technologies and ideas. And with over 200 members now, the Digital Twin Consortium is trying to, to bring a more standardized approach so that we can use various different solutions together. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that's very apparent is that there's not a single software vendor in the world that can provide a, an end-to-end solution mm. for an owner. Mm. And so we we need to assemble these solutions. And if we can assemble solutions from software vendors that at least are are sharing this data external to their applications in such a way that we can start to integrate it, into this overall digital building life cycle, it makes the, the solution a
0: lot cheaper for an owner to implement. So these companies that kind of started this consortium, Autodesk, Microsoft, Bentley, et cetera, were they doing this for themselves at first and then realized that this would be useful for other owners? Because they, they obviously have buildings all over the place. They have campuses all over the place. And I would assume that would be very valuable for them. And they kind of realized that Is that where it came from? It's a a combination of, uh, so Microsoft is a a very
1: large property owner in terms of its data centers, in Mm. terms of its uh, offices, in terms of its retail. But in addition to that, it also has products which can be applied directly to solve this problem. So Microsoft has the, the, the Azure Cloud, which hosts a lot of applications. One of those applications is the, the Azure Digital Twin platform. It's not so much an application as a platform where others can start to build these applications. Mm -hmm. And those others are organizations like Bentley that's building on top of that and building out an application infrastructure, which can then be reused by a a large number of owners. So there's a a lot of different parts that have to be brought together. But the most important thing is to bring together like-minded people who can start to advance this very different approach to, I I nearly got into my own habit of using the word construction, but really we're trying to move away from construction into the the world of the digital building lifecycle to support the building lifecycle. We're trying to move away from focusing on software products, which uh, are really just providing the, the ability to do things to uh to, to focus very much on solutions so that we can start to assemble a variety of these products often from competing vendors into something that works for uh, an owner
0: interesting so what obviously they as owners themselves could see the value in this and then once you start taking it outside to other potential owners who might be interested in doing this what what has been the reception of this do they see the value and do they jump at the chance or do they push back? And and how is it being kind of, like I said, how, how is it being received by other owners out there that are outside of this ecosystem?
1: So this is very much a transformational change yeah. within the uh, our uh, existing world. And I'll deliberately use the word of construction because we are very siloed at the moment. We have certain uh, legal reasons why we are, are siloed as well. Mm. And within this world, If I apply organizational change management theory to this transformational change, it uh, suggests that there will be 10% of this audience that are what we call the anchors. They will never change. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: There will be 10% change agents. They want to change, but they probably don't know how to change. And then the rest of the market is going to align with whether the change agents or the anchors are in the ascendancy. I would say at the moment that the anchors are very much in the ascendancy. There's a, very much a reluctance to change. And that's because most of the, the projects are, are going to be one-off projects. But if we can start to distill from this market the serial builders, the owner-operators mm-hmm. who can really benefit from this transformational change, they could be a, as few initially as 1% of that 10% of change agents. Mm -hmm. But that's still a huge market. And we believe that in focusing on those owners who want to change, because I believe that this change can only come from an owner perspective. Mm. If the owners can put together the specifications and can start to drive the industry to that change and can then start to illustrate the benefits, which are often substantial in terms of cost and schedule, Now, 15, 20, even 30% are not unusual when you start looking at reuse within projects rather than uh, looking at them as as being a one-off project. Then that will start to influence the way the rest of the market starts to uh, evaluate this technology and this approach of the the digital twin and then starts to push it
0: into those parts of its workflow which are most applicable. It seems like many, many, many owners are only interested in first costs i think that's part of a symptom of the larger problem of these silos and the way in which projects are procured Um, you know we've talked about it also on this podcast where you've got public bid process lowest fees for the architect then you've got lowest bid by a contractor the less time you spend on a project the better from an architect standpoint right equals more profitability Contractor is hungry for work. has to has to outbid their competition by lowering as much as they can and cutting as many corners. and And so, what you see is cutting, cutting, cutting corners, cutting corners is the incentive. So, how do you shift the perspective of the owner to see a longer term return on investment because of this partnership? that's being formed over a longer period of time to ensure that the building is evolving with the client through, you know, different business changes and opportunities and um, like you're you're able to run these simulations and and test ideas before spending the money on the physical office building. It seems like that's a big mindset shift that has to occur.
1: I absolutely agree in terms of the the conventional way of analyzing this. Mm-hmm. Because the conventional way is to say, from an owner's perspective, the department is just focused on delivering a physical building. Mm-hmm. Once the physical building is complete, then they go off to the next project, right. but then they leave it to their facilities team that has to take that physical building and manage it efficiently right the The big difference though, is coming back to the word I'm using more and more, the words uh, serial builders. Because if we're then starting to apply those techniques to more than one project, we can then engage the architect and the construction team to to start replicating some of the things which have worked and avoiding some of the things which haven't worked on previous projects. We can get into rather than a, a competitive bid for every single project, we can start to get more into advanced uh, delivery techniques like integrated project delivery. Mm -hmm. We can start sharing the benefits. We can start applying manufacturing principles rather than one-off construction principles. And so the entire supply chain can start to benefit from a very different owner's perspective, a very different contracting perspective, but also the focus on gathering this data such that second time through, we're going to improve. Mm -hmm. We're going to start reducing costs. We're going to start reducing schedules. We're going to start increasing safety and increasing quality. And as we start to bring in those serial builder perspectives, then suddenly the whole process changes. And we start to visualize buildings, not just as a one-off project, but we start to look for the similarity in those buildings and gathering that information, such that we can reapply it in, in in either small bits or or large bits, in order to optimize the overall process. So it becomes very much more akin to uh, manufacturing, with the realization that every building is going to be different because mm-hmm. of the uh, the site, because of the uh, AHJ uh, requirements, and uh, because maybe. Uh, material evolution as well. Mm-hmm. But what we try and do is to look for the similarities within those buildings, as well as the, the differences, and try and uh, apply these techniques to the similarities.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's important to make the distinction. I think when you're saying serial builders, I think you're also assuming private projects, right? And Because what, what I was coming from, with my experience, is public projects, and a lot of times we say it's designed by maintenance, right? It's designed by the MO group for, for a lot of the systems, which is, again, kind of going back to what they're comfortable with, what they used on the last project, what their team is capable of maintaining, or picking and choosing materials and things based on long term wear and tear and not necessarily function or performance or energy codes or any of those things. So, I think it is important to make this distinction that what you're talking about is, is a different type of client than what I'm talking about. And hopefully it gets to the point where that actually can break outside of that that group and trickle down to these other client and project types.
1: You're, you're absolutely correct that uh, it's really only the, the commercial uh, owners that can apply some of these techniques immediately. If you're You're dealing with public procurement processes. They are are very much design build type Mm -hmm. of processes. They certainly couldn't take a lot of the advantages of this
0: approach. Yeah. So I'm wondering, you know, kind of shifting this, you know, one of the premises of this podcast is how technology is changing the profession of architecture, because I'm an architect and that's where I'm coming from. I'm wondering how open to these conversations you're finding architects to be? Because you're coming at it from, like, there are these very different pieces to the puzzle. Um, You you guys are dealing with owners. How are architects, are they adopting this kind of thinking? Um, And I'm sure it's kind of all over the map, but what's been your experience?
1: That's a very interesting question, which I can't answer in terms of a general reply. Mm. Because like every other profession, there are, are those who want to try new ideas,
0: right? and there are
1: those who will try and avoid new ideas.
0: Yeah, there's, there's a saying that I have that I've used in many presentations, and it's, there's two things that architects hate, and my listeners are probably sick of me saying this, but there's two things that architects hate, the way things are and change. And we often <laughs> find ourselves right in the middle of those things. And, and so, yeah, there's that bell curve of, of adoption. There's the early adopters all the way to the laggards, and so I, I I hear what you're saying. There's people who avoid it completely, and there's people who are early adopters, and everywhere in the middle.
1: Absolutely. We we sometimes say in organizational change management that the objective is to make people more comfo- more uncomfortable where they are than where you want them to be. Mm. So some architect firms have absolutely adopted this technique, even though it reduces their billable hours tremendously but because they're getting repeat work, their profits are going up. Mm -hmm. Whereas others have resisted it and deliberately tried to almost use the word sabotage these efforts, they no longer work with our our clients who are serial builders. Mm -hmm. So I think the architect profession, just like every uh, profession, uh, has got to decide how the world is is evolving and to, to try and align with that Or with some of the the more advanced uh, architects, how they're actually going to participate in that change. And uh, they say the best way to predict the future is to Yeah,
0: absolutely. So kind of comes back to that mindset shift from short term incentives based on low fees. You don't have a lot of time to spend on a project and shifting that to long term relationships and helping owners uh, efficiently run their buildings. And who better to do that than the architects and the builders and people who understand that data and and understand space and understand how buildings work? Are you seeing a change happening there with architects to adopt that new mindset? Uh, I mean, do you have any examples of, of architects that have that you feel like kind of exemplify that mindset shift? yeah i won't name names but there are a certain of the architecture firms we're working
1: with are are very receptive to participating in the the evolution of these new techniques so for example to be using a a bim based catalog to to build out uh, things like conference rooms or offices which can be utilized over and over again to to work on how we can use some of the the features inside of Revit and other design applications, where we can uh, start off with a, a pre-built model, a model complete right down to the uh, all, all the sheets, but then we can introduce changes to that because we've used groups inside of Revit in very innovative ways. So we can start to to change systems almost on the the basis of Lego blocks. Mm. So think of the concept that if you've designed your your, your Lego building in such a way that you've uh, you've got a few, sort of I'll call them four-bump uh, bricks within that, if you want to change from a, a yellow to a red, it's fairly easy to do that. And the software products that we now have available in design can enable that sort of approach. But some architects will not work in that way. Some Interesting. are very happy to to look at this very
0: innovative way of of starting to apply design. And then obviously there's this, the big tech side of things. I mean, you mentioned a few names that um, are on everybody's list of, of companies to watch out for like Autodesk with the BIM 360 cloud, like Microsoft with the Azure. Obviously there's, there's a lot of insight and influence in having that data at their fingertips. So, seems to me like there's, I mean, it's it's one of the elephants in the room too, is this idea of security and privacy comes up over and over when you're talking about the Internet of Things from like a, well, the security standpoint, because these things are, are, are on the network and there are potential threats where people can come in through as a, as a gateway. But then there's also the privacy concerns of people and being tracked throughout the project. And then there's kind of this big data kind of threat that people state as this is they know more about us and, and our behavior than we're comfortable with. So I mean maybe we just shift the conversation around that for a little bit because it does seem like it is something that comes up time and time again and I'm wondering how you guys talk about that when you're pursuing this because obviously there's other giant benefits as well and kind of coming to a common ground around these these topics of security and privacy is important during that during that conversation.
1: Some very interesting topics within that. So let, let's deal with uh, security in the cloud versus security on a private network. And I would say security in the cloud is far, far higher than security on a, a private network. Mm. You, you can talk about physical security. You can talk about a computer, which is, is completely isolated. And uh, But then when you, you think a lot of us are using laptops now, The the physical security aspects of that goes away. We're now starting to focus on the security of the the software packages themselves. If that data resides in the cloud, it's got to be a lot more secure than if it resides on a laptop. Mm. So that's one of the first aspects. I would say if you talk to any IT professional, they will always say that security in a cloud-based application is always going to be higher than security on a, a physical application but then let's look at the the second aspect of that, which is people are worried about tracking performance. Well, I would say you should only be worried about your performance being tracked if you're not performing well mm-hmm. and if you are are happy to show that you are more efficient and you are certainly more efficient than your competitors then you should be uh, very happy to have that performance tracked. Let's go and and, and talk about lean principles. So Lean Construction Institute is rolling out all sorts of uh, tools and techniques to then start to to see how efficient or inefficient the the rolling out of of, uh, conventional processes are. But if you apply uh, this process or this analogy may be back to manufacturing particularly when you look at say toyota principles to to lean manufacturing mm-hmm. they are timing every single activity within the the uh, production line to to cut seconds or even fractions of a second off the the, the various steps in order to make them more efficient mm-hmm. So this comes back down to the fact that the only way to, to study a process is to gather information on that process. For sure. That information doesn't have to, to be expressed on an individual basis. It can still be expressed on a statistical basis. Right. And even when you're looking at uh, tracking sensors inside a building, people movement sensors, you can make sure that those can't be directly attributed to an individual Everything can be put into a statistical form. Even tracking things like uh, Wi-Fi movements, it doesn't have to be to a, a specific
0: person's phone. Right, it would be anonymized at some level.
1: It'd be yeah. all an- anonymized, yes. Yeah. Right. So th- there's ways of, of overcoming every single objection, I, I, I believe.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to think of, and I'm not I'm not trying to make an argument for it right now or against it, but uh, it's interesting when when the flag is raised over this kind of a topic. But people are, and again, I'm not trying to paint the picture one way or another, but people are very happy to do a Google search and not either recognize or not recognize what is being tracked about you in that time and place as well, or to build that profile of you online. I mean, and and again, there's there's positive benefits to that as well as negative ones. The positive one is targeted ads, many would argue, are more tolerable to see because it, it is something that you are potentially a lot more interested in. Than something you are not, right? So, and there, the only way that that it gets to that point is by knowing enough about you to to make that recommendation. So, it is it is kind of interesting that we type things into Google, and fully expect it to, and, and, and we're okay with that. And versus this, where again, like there are layers of of anonymity built into the system, and and people raise raise the flag there, and it's it's almost the same thing.
1: Absolutely. I think we also have to look at the, the difference between U.S. data security in an office environment uh, compared to the, uh, the personalized or sort of residential type of environment. Because we actually have very uh, few safeguards within uh, an office environment.
0: Our uh, uh, employers actually own that data. Yeah. We don't own that data. Right. I think that that is uh, lost on many people because the lines have become so blurred, right? It bring your own device, what happens on that device. Um, before, you know, it used to be you go to the office and you would use the phone at the desk at the office. Now you just have the phone with you all the time and you're using it for all kinds of things. So as those lines get blurry and, and blurrier between personal devices, office devices, platforms, systems, all of those things, I think it is important to continually remind everybody that, Yeah, like that work email is not your data, it's their data. What you say on that is theirs. And and there's so many examples of that. I I recently, we launched this year uh, uh, an email filing system, and there was some information showing up in that database that people were not comfortable seeing in there. And it's like, but you used the office email to send that data. But people had this kind of understanding or their false understanding that it was their email not the business's email. And I think that that is something worth bringing up over and over again.
1: Absolutely. If they really want to get into that, they, they should go into uh, the discovery laws mm-hmm. around the uh, legal
0: implication of, of making that electronic discovery. Yeah. And it is hard for people to keep everything into separate buckets. Uh, no doubt about it. And, and the technology companies aren't really making that any easier to switch between they're just like use this one, use this for everything, use this one platform for everything. Obviously, there's huge value for them in that in that data as well. But it is interesting to to kind of step back and and restate that and and make help people understand that most of the stuff that you're doing is not not under your control anymore, and you've kind of willingly given it up.
1: But, but let's change the perspective to to say that uh, if people are are not. As efficient as somebody else maybe they need more training mm-hmm. maybe they need yeah. you know, a little bit more education in that area so that we can start to to focus on the good things that we do and trying to leverage that across the the rest of our workforce rather than punishing the bad people and essentially punishing the the good at the same time and bringing everyone back to a, an average standard
0: Absolutely. I mean, another great example of that that we put into practice in the office is watching model health for Revit models, right? And a lot of people raised the flag and said, I don't want you to know how poorly I'm modeling, (laughs) right? Hmm. Because, again, we're going back to incentives and cutting corners and things like that. But at the same time like if somebody's not following a certain standard, you maybe they don't know about that standard or maybe they don't know about a new process that needs to you know that that it's better now than it was when you learned how to use that program ten years ago and starting to look for those opportunities to identify opportunities for growth or opportunities for betterment and I, I absolutely agree that that kind of perspective shift is important
1: absolutely i'm I'm a great believer that everyone comes to work wanting to do the job to the best of their ability. Mm-hmm. But that's the, the, the critical word, I think, is the, the best of their ability. As a, a manager, we have to make sure that they have an environment in which they can flourish. And we also have to question every single thing we do every single day to make sure it, it is the, the optimal process. And it's only by having a, an open discussion and open sharing of that data that we will start to break down a lot of the silos that we have and start to improve how we can deliver our individual professions and the improvements in the overall
0: digital building life cycle. Mm-hmm. So speaking about people improvement and process improvement, how have you seen the digital twin, I don't know, I don't really want to call it a platform, but let's just call it a, a movement. How have you seen it improve in the last few years i mean because this is on a trajectory i'm sure that is like most other tech where it's it's changing rapidly so what are what are some of the things that you've noticed that you feel like are really positive changes in the evolution of of digital twin because i'm sure there's some people who have who looked into this you know five years ago and weren't sold on it um and and things change quickly so what are you seeing as as being particularly interesting in the evolution of digital twin
1: yes that's uh A really good question. Uh, Make me think deeply because digital twin is a a very new concept in in terms that uh, NASA came up with this concept uh, not more than 10 years or so ago. And it's really only been applied in the last seven or eight years within industry and mainly in products. So building out aircraft engines or or compressors rather than in, in terms of buildings. But I would say that the technology is rapidly improving uh, and the the technology is also enabling us to to break the the silos apart. So rather than focusing on the architect initially and the the use of BIM, if I can be very general and I'll probably get criticized for doing this, that I see the, the use of BIM as going through three main cycles. So, the first cycle is architects jumped on to produce drawings more efficiently. And that was very much a, a siloed response. And some architects did it really well and some did it not so well, but it was focused on just getting drawings out, which were then communicated. Mm-hmm. The second. And many stopped there. <laughs> many stopped there, yeah. And uh, many don't even realize that they can go past that. But then the second evolution is to start to saying, well, maybe we can use BIM to communicate and we can better enable the, the model to be designed such that it can go straight into construction and we can start to do construction coordination and clash detection to start to eliminate some of the, the issues and
0: additional costs on the construction site. Yeah, when it's too late or very expensive at that point.
1: Absolutely. And that's a world where the GCs have really started to use BIM effectively Mm -hmm. for what I call coordination and clash detection. But I think we're now getting into the third evolution of BIM, where we're saying that we don't want to just focus on BIM for the visual aspects, more the 2D and 3D, more the uh, coordination and clash detection. But we want to focus on BIM as being the fundamental data elements to start associating with all the other data. That we need to start linking back to cost, to schedule, to assets, and to everything else that starts to, to build out this digital
0: thread, which is going to enable the digital twin use cases. And yeah, ultimately to outcomes, right? Because that, that's where the owner really sees that return.
1: Absolutely. I, I sometimes use the, the words outcomes and outputs. So outputs are really project-based delivery. And that's very much what we're focused in in terms of construction. We're focused on a, an output of a building. Mm-hmm. But to an owner, that building has to be brought into their business operations and it has to influence their outcomes. So I, I think you know, your, your use of that uh, word and, and your question is very wise because the biggest change that I'm seeing is that as we all start working together within this digital thread, within this uh, more holistic process, we're better able to influence the outcomes of owners. And once the the, the owner's outcomes are, are going to be improved, then they're going to want to replicate that and they're going to want to do more work with the different participants who've enabled that different outcome.
0: It seems to be a way to build trust and accountability between the different pieces of this puzzle. I think that something that in traditional construction delivery methods, you know, design bid build is very low, 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 low levels of trust. And this to me kind of starts to point everybody in the same direction to say, we're all on the same team because we're all trying to get the best outcomes for the owner and not only that, but by stretching out the relationship over decades really causes that shift, I think reinforces that shift to happen and reinforces that idea of trust. Is that something that, that is talked about a lot? It's probably not talked about
1: specifically, but it's very much part of the overall process. Because part of uh, making the this data available to all parties, say, in a, a multi-party agreement, integrated project delivery or progressive design build, is that if you're not open, then nobody's going to trust you mm-hmm. and they're not going to make their data available. Mm-hmm. And the more data available, the more honest we're willing to, to be with each other, yeah. the more we're going to recognize the true problems we have and start solving them.
0: Yeah, it, it does force that kind of uh, a higher level of honesty. Because I, We talked about I've talked about this on previous episodes of my other podcast, where it's just me and another architect kind of exposing what it's like to work in this profession. And one of the shifts that we went through years ago was the shift from renderings of a single view to VR. And VR forces an honesty, because now the person with the headset on can look wherever they want. They don't have a curated viewport into the project that has lots of Photoshop applied to it to make it look absolutely ideal. It's many times now it's a lower level of detail. It's, you know, there's maybe you're getting in there before materials and lighting and all that stuff has been applied and it forces you to, it forces an honesty to say like, here's what the space looks like. Here's where we're at with design, 100%. We didn't just model and render this one view and nothing behind it. This is where we're at holistically. It seems like it's a similar type of a conversation here where by making more data available and people doing that in the open, it really does kind of force that accountability and honesty uh, between between these parties.
1: That's a, a very good analogy because if we you, you mentioned BIM three hundred and sixty before, but if we're sharing with the the owner the multidisciplinary models, then they're, they're not only seeing the the renderings that seeing what the the building is going to look like from uh, the occupants, but they can also look into those walls and see how the mechanical systems, the electrical systems, the plumbing systems have been designed as well.
0: Right. So it's a completely different type of transparency. So we talked about several different kind of platform or technology companies that are playing in this. And one of the things that we talked about, I think, before we started recording was the this idea of these different data silos and how owners are kind of handling that. You want to get into that a little bit and talk about, you know, one of the things you guys talked about were data standards and how you kind of identify those before kicking off a project. It seems like open standards like IFC and things like that would be very important to this this movement.
1: Yeah, we we certainly believe that uh, standards are very important. So things like naming conventions within the the design model Making sure we've got a, a proper work breakdown structure, so that we can tie that back to tagging standards, and tie it back into to cost and schedule. Uh, so there's a, a whole variety of, of data standards which are, are very important, and that starts to, to make sure that that there is transportable through the, the different phases of our uh, building life cycle and to different platforms as well. Mm. Uh, Certainly our approach is to try to be completely software agnostic, Mm -hmm. because from an owner's perspective, we always want to recommend to our owners they use the the best possible software that's there.
0: And not only that, but software takes expertise to run and run it well. So if there's a change in any of those platforms, then it takes additional time and commitment to learn about those changes, to stay up to date on those. And it doesn't seem like they would be in it as much as the the people who are within the industry are. So that would be kind of a daunting, I would think, uh, perspective from an owner's owner's side.
1: Absolutely. And I I think people sometimes don't realize that the the highest cost of software is not the licensing cost or the, uh, the maintenance cost. It's actually the training cost. Right.
0: That's what makes it so hard to change because, yeah, you could swap out a license of this software for that software, but you have all that embedded knowledge and the people who use it and that retraining is is a huge huge expense.
1: Absolutely, that's why we we like to to get standardized uses of, of the software, but to still make sure that the the data
0: is very easily transportable between systems. Yeah, I going back to a, something we talked about a little bit ago. I wanted to add my my pick for what one of the exciting changes that's happened that i've seen in digital twin and i think you and i talked about this previously was on the data collection side of things after the the spaces are built and how learning how they're actually getting used versus maybe how they thought they were going to get used during design and we work it was a good example that we talked about where they would actively survey people after the fact of using spaces and say okay what was was the temperature okay did you use the technology how many people actually showed up versus the size of the room that you booked and i think it was you who said well now that's all automated right like now there's sensors collecting that data and we don't number 1 have to rely on people to do it because sometimes they don't but two it reduces the number of errors in that data collection so that I'm a fan of taking away that kind of menial work like nobody really wants to fill out a survey after they've used a space they just want to go on and, and do the next thing that's on their to-do list and and getting a survey notification is is somebody else's to-do list for you right so that to yep. me is one of the one of the nice um, evolution things that I've seen where where it just makes it it's more passive. It's just happening. And like we said, we talked a little bit about the anonymity potential of that data, and that's important. But I, I do also think that it's nice to see the automatic collection of this this data.
1: Absolutely. Maybe a, a couple of examples on that. Uh, I'll make a, a general statement, but I'm sure that there's not an architect in the world that wouldn't like feedback as to how the occupants of the building are actually experiencing their design. Mm-hmm and that comes through something we call the internet of, uh, of actions mm. so we can start to see how people are uh, are using the building i was told by a, a friend of mine who's an architect many years ago who was designing educational campuses he said you know we've we've learned never ever to design the paths he said we we wait until the the, the students start to use the, the different buildings and then they'll form their own paths through the the various buildings and then we'll come along and we'll do the landscaping and put in the paths because we're reflecting the way they use the buildings rather than the way we think the the buildings should be used.
0: Yeah, there's actually a name for that. I can't think of what it is, but it's a, there. If you search the internet for that. There's definitely a, a name for that type of behavior and, and affect. We
1: call it people breaking the system. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the second uh Use you, so you mentioned in terms of feedback, which is a very valuable use. Think of a, a conference room. You think of those uh, long meetings that we've all had, and we get to the end of a, an hour and a half or so, and we start to, to think, when is this meeting going to end? We're, we're, we're not as uh, mentally efficient as we should be, and a large part of that is because of the carbon dioxide buildup in mm-hmm. the room. It slows us down. So if we can start to monitor for that carbon dioxide buildup and feed that back to our mechanical systems to increase the airflow into those conference rooms, we can start to get the participants in those conferences very much more efficient than in a, a conventional conference room. And this can all be done through sensors and feedback into the the building automation systems. For like real-time adjustment. Yeah. Absolutely. Interesting. And. And if uh, we've got a 20-person conference room that's only being used by 10 people, we can also change the, the air flows to, to reduce those and so uh, start to meet our sustainability targets. So, so there's lots of things we can do with sensors to, to make sure we know how many people are participating, uh, sensors to understand how the air quality is being changed by those numbers, and that's all down to the, the the Internet of Things, Internet of
0: Activities, and being able to collate this data inside of a digital twin. I think that that's super interesting, and I would love to start maybe wrapping this up and ask you a couple of final questions. I, first one, I think, is just what what is the current kind of momentum of digital twin and digital twin consortium? How are you guys feeling? And then, and then, secondly. If you had an ask of the audience of this podcast, what would it be? Because it sounds to me like, obviously, you're passionate about this and you're excited about it. How do we get more people involved in this and and where would they go to do that?
1: So in in terms of the first question, how do I feel what's happening in the market at the moment? Mm -hmm. One of my team has described it as the, the popcorn effect. You put the popcorn in the oven and nothing happens. And nothing happens and nothing happens. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the oven is full of popcorn. Right. We believe we are are just experiencing the first few pops. And uh, this year is going to to show a a major difference in the adoption of digital twins. So the, the level of interest has just been phenomenal. It's rising exponentially but that uh, is not necessarily transferring into a, a lot more work because in, in order to, to get the, the whole process of digital twin working, you have to go back to, to square one and start to define data standards. Mm-hmm. So if, if I ask uh, one thing of your audience, it would be to stop thinking in terms of your silo. Mm-hmm. Start looking at where you get the data, and who you give the data to, and start to ask them how they want their data. I, I was on a panel at Autodesk University once, and I, we brought together a civil engineer, an architect, a general contractor, and an owner. And I always remember the architect talking to the general contractor and saying, I give you all this information. You should be really happy with what I'm providing you. And the GC turned around and said, well, I would be if you gave me what I needed. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah, we've talked about that on the show as well. Because, yeah, I mean, and, and not only, there, there's a fundamental breakdown right there. And it's that it's that the general contractor is expecting what they need when the deliverable of the architect is to get through agency, not necessarily provide everything that the contractor needs. And I do honestly feel like we could go so much further if we just simply asked that question as architects. What do you need and what do you want?
1: But I think the the important role for an owner is to make sure that they not only ask those questions, but then put in a process that provides the, the optimum output for all participants, including those who are stamping the drawings. Yeah.
0: I think uh, if architects in particular took your advice around thinking outside of their silo, I I think that's an ask that I would have for our profession as well. And because what it leads to is a value proposition for architecture and design that is much further beyond selling time for money. As soon as you are the expert that is tied to the owner for a long-term relationship to make their building or help that building perform better over time and to make proactive adjustments for the needs of that business, you have a seat at that table, and that is going to not only lead to, to more work, but lead to higher levels of trust, and it's a better value proposition for what the purpose of architecture can be beyond delivering a design in a set of drawings.
1: Absolutely. We should always focus on the value that we are creating, not just for ourselves and our employers, but for those who are contracting with us, which ultimately is the owner. If we can't clearly demonstrate how we're creating value for an
0: owner, then I don't think we should be part of the profession.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Well said. Well, thanks so much, John, for taking time today to speak with me. I have one final opportunity for you here, and that is Can you please tell the audience where they can learn more about what you guys are working on?
1: I would say the best uh, place to start is the Digital Twin Consortium. So that's digitaltwinconsortium.org. There are a lot of information available there. There's podcasts, there's blogs, and most importantly, reach out to the, the members of the consortium and start talking with them. The reason why we started talking was my request uh, for more architects to be involved in this because we don't have enough architects involved in the Digital Twin Consortium. And uh, I, I would certainly like to encourage all architects to, to reach out and to, to see how they can participate in the transformation of a world, not just of construction, but of this digital building life cycle.
0: Well said. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. And I hope that our audience gets a lot of value out of it. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks very much. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at Gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E Troxel. Talk to you soon.